This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, author and professor of psychiatry and religion, Pilar Jennings, and CIIS's Sergio Rodriguez Castillo, in conversation about the intersection of Buddhism and psychology. This event was recorded on August 2nd, 2000. 2018 in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. And that's also where you can find out more about us, including how to sponsor future episodes of the show. So welcome, Pilar, and welcome, everyone. Thank you for being here. So excited to be here and to have this opportunity to talk about this, this wonderful book. Of course, that's perhaps that's something we're supposed to do. Oh, such a great book and so on and so forth. But it is. It is truly. Let me, let me be honest with you. When, Thank you. When I first uh, got it, I was thinking like, oh, another book of psychology and, and Buddhism, right? What, what, what would be new? And I want to ask about that in a moment. But as I read it, I, there's something about your honesty in the way you talk about it and the, and, and the client, and we'll talk about the client. There's something really refreshing in it. So I, I truly, truly enjoy it. So thank you for the opportunity. and strongly recommend it. <laughs> and the first thing I say, when I... Think about this book. You say, okay, so what is this? I was thinking, how am I going to introduce this book? I decided not to. I'm going to ask you to do that. Because, okay, is this a memoir? Is this a case study? Are you presenting a new approach? It's like a little bit of all those things. So I, what would you say this book is about? Thank you. Uh, you. You present it beautifully. I think it's a combination of, of a memoir and, and really it's, it's my story. Um, before, before I knew anything about psychoanalysis, at least from a clinical perspective, uh, and knew much about the Buddha Dharma, I knew that I loved narrative. Uh, and probably like like most kids or many kids, I discovered that I could I could begin to understand my life. I could begin to understand my relationship to the world through stories. So so well before I had any interest in becoming a clinician or a Buddhist informed clinician, I knew that I wanted to work with stories. So I think that's really been a big part of of how I write. Uh, and it's also a big part of how I, I practice. It, it, you can feel that in the book. You can feel it. Almost feels like you are discovering stuff almost as you're writing them. I don't know if that's the case, but there's some like it almost feels like you began the, the chapters someplace and then it evolved and it ended in, in, in a different place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's that's part of why people write is it gives them a chance to to reflect more consciously, right? Often we we have our experience, but almost as if we're not having it fully until we tell someone our story, right? Or until we're writing about it, or we're taking some opportunity to reflect. And then often it's as if we're having the experience for the first time. And that's a big theme. I, I want to get back to that in a moment, the, the, the theme of stories, so much resonated with me because that's psychotherapy. Being a, a clinician myself, we, that's what we do in many in many ways. We hear stories, right? And there's power in the stories. But we, we'll get to that into into a moment. The second question that I have for you, and I'm not, I won't be giving numbers to every single one, but these two were very close together. Like I said, there's so many books out there about so many people, great people. Uh, I, I, I talk about Wellwood, something very close to us here. Uh, but there's a lot of cornfield. There's so many people that have written about Buddhism and psychotherapy or, or psychology or psychoanalysis in, in your case. This is a question that I hear. Uh, I was in preparing for this. I told you I, I listen a lot of podcasts and interviews. And I, so I, I've heard some, some of the answers uh, I already know. But one that I was curious about is what would you say is what this book brings? What, what, is, what is the, 
the contribution of this particular book to a field that certainly not out there. It's, it's very new, and that's something that I keep hearing is, oh, this novel approach of Buddhism and psychotherapy, right? And in many ways it is. But for, for this crowd, it's not such a revelation. But there's something, and I, I have my answer, but I want to see what is your answer? What is the contribution of this particular book to the field? It's a good question, and I, I think my my hope was that in telling in telling my story about how I entered the field, how I decided to become a therapist, and how I was bringing Buddhism into clinical work, I I also wanted to um, find a way to to suggest that regardless of our training, we we just have to live out how these traditions come together. And in a way, this is true of all professions. We we have to uh, take our training seriously and 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 be fully invested, and then, in a way, let it go, so that it can just uh, move through our particular psyche. And so, the way I was practicing, of course, it was informed by what I had been lo- been learning, and it was informed by my ongoing work with my mentors and my supervisors. But it was also changing, and, and changing in some ways quite radically. Um, and I, I felt like I, I could offer this story as a way of affirming, for clinicians of all ages, but especially for clinicians who are, are getting ready to enter the field, that we really do have to find our own way. Right. Mm-hmm. You, you said... Uh- you say at some point, and I have it here in my notes, this idea of you have to find, we, we all therapies, but you, you were, you needed to find how to be, I don't remember the exact word, I'm not going to look for them, but to be the therapy that she needed, that was, that was the expression, to be the therapist that she needed you to be. That's, that's so powerful. Yeah, I, I have been so so moved and impressed and impacted by by the the mentors that I've had who um, they're anchored genuinely in who they are, but they're also willing to to change and to almost lose themselves in dependence upon the needs of each patient or each client and and I think that that reflects the best of relationship. Right when we stay connected to ourselves, but we're willing to be impacted by others so much that that we undergo very significant changes. And I think when people seek out therapy, they can feel when the clinician has a lot of spaciousness, right? So that there's no there's no agenda imposed on the patient. There's really room for, for the opportunity to discover who the patient is and who they need the therapist to be. Who they need the therapist to be. And it's a dance. Yeah. It's a yeah. dance because uh, I think it was Jim Bugenthal that once said, if one of my clients could be a fly on the wall and see how I am with my other clients, he would see that they, he she would think there's something off. Something would be similar, but some things are so specific to each relationship. Our clients evoke different parts of, of us. They do, they do. And, and other clinicians have written about how if, if anyone were observing, they might swiftly cart the clinician off to the nearest psychiatric facility <laughs> because they seem to change so much with each, with each person they're working with. But again, you have to, you have to both stay connected Right, be be anchored, be contained in, in who you authentically are, as you're you're navigating all these changes. And in some ways, and you make very clear that this is not just about meditation, but and you compare, as many have done before, meditation and, and sitting with the client. Right? You make reference to Freud, this saying that this is spaciousness you talk about that allows you to move in wherever direction the client needs you to move on and be even whoever the the client needs you to be. Yeah, I I think that issue of spaciousness is really key because it's obviously super helpful for the therapist, right? Just to to have some room to to change, to grow, to navigate what's happening. 
Um, but it's also so helpful for the patient, right? Again, just to feel like there's, there's room for what might seem too terrible to think about, too terrible to symbolize in language, right? Too much for the, the therapist to hear about, right? So that spaciousness, in the same way we need spaciousness when we're in utero, right? We, we need that psychically throughout our lives, and, and we certainly need it in any, in any healing endeavor. Yes. Something, those of you that haven't read the book yet, one of the things that's very new about the approach, and I'm not really sure if you're uh, suggesting this as an approach, but something very specific that, you, that, that, that Pilar did in, in, in this particular case is that she invited uh, her teacher, Lama Pema, uh, as, as you call it in the book, uh, to be part of the of the therapy, and I, I want you to just just so you have the context, some of the questions that are coming. That that is novel. That that is something that was something to say. What? <laughs> <laughs> that that was something bold in mm-hmm. some ways and, and, and beautiful. But I want you to talk a little bit more about it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I I had um, an eclectic but a traditional psychoanalytic training. So no theorist and, and no lecturer that I worked with, no clinician ever encouraged me to bring visitors to my sessions. And it's not anything that I imagine would be helpful because a, a, big, a big part of clinical work is the frame, right, is a boundary. And so I took that very seriously. And one of my supervisors uh, who was very important to me was a long-term Buddhist And he knew that I had a very close relationship with my Buddhist teacher, and I had been practicing the Dharma since I was a child. And as he and I were exploring um, some of my earliest cases, and some of them were were very complex, and I think like many new clinicians, I was feeling a lot of anxiety about whether or not I'd be able to be helpful enough he and I started talking about what it would be like to bring my teacher to a session. And the idea was, um, and this was in in reference to the children that I was treating, uh, and I think that's an important point. Um, We we were both um, imagining that for, for these kids, they were coming to cultivate a sense of themselves as... um, um, prone to suffering, right? And, and in a way, overly identified with their traumas because they were young and uh, badly traumatized. So it's a very human thing to do. And my teacher uh, also suffered many, many traumas early in life. And, and while I don't think, um, I know he hasn't been spared suffering and still suffers, he, he nevertheless went on to live a full life. He went on to live a meaningful life, right? He went on to, to cultivate really important connections with so many people. So on a simple level, the idea was just to offer to, to the children that I was seeing um, that, that it is possible to be badly hurt, uh, and to suffer extraordinarily and still go on to, to be able to live with a sense of, of purpose and meaning and, and even joy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You said the children, but the case is about one specific child, Martin, Martin, that's how you pronounce it. Um, you only brought him to her, is that correct? I actually, I was running a group. Okay. Yeah, and so I brought him into the group, and so I introduced him to more than one child. Um, so that didn't make it into the book, but that's actually what happened. That's, that's a revelation, yeah, because it doesn't look like that in the book. Yeah. In, in her particular case, you said this, I'm, I'm going to read this one, you said there's this kind of coin. How do you practice the talking cure with a patient who doesn't talk? Because she didn't talk. So tell me a little bit more about how do you solve? Coins are not to be solved. but yeah. 
Well, so so this particular child, and I will say that I had several other patients of all ages who, um, for a variety of reasons, really were not able to to, to talk much at all in session. Um, this child was diagnosed as having selective mutism, so she she was barely speaking in most settings. Um, I, I've since learned that it's it's pretty common for patients to not be able to speak freely uh, for a long period of time with a, a new therapist, and and often for new therapists it it's uh, terrifying <laughs> because you you've been practicing and anticipating sitting and listening, right, and listening with sensitivity and, and mindfulness and intelligence and all those good things. But when you're suddenly in a room with someone and there's really nothing to listen to but silence, um, it requires you to, to start to think creatively about how you're going to work with that silence. Yeah. And, it, and it's interesting because when we talk about child therapy, often we say, well, you follow the child, right? You follow the child, but in, in this case, something that I love is the childlike qualities that Lama Pema, that kind of open her in some way. So I, I'm thinking, as therapists, sometimes we said, well, you don't, you're not supposed to have an agenda. We kind of have an agenda, right? Like you said, with the, the, the child needs to talk, and we have the we know we believe we know what are the issues and how we need to solve those issues. But here comes someone that truly has no agenda. I mean, Lama Pema really comes as a guest, and he's not trying to accomplish anything. He's just being there, and I think that there's something very powerful in that. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, and and it's another reason why I thought this could be interesting, right? This is not someone who's who's trying to um, address this child's psychological problems or trauma history, but just to be there and, and to interact in a respectful, loving way. And and what was interesting is that he, I was a little worried, and I write about this in the book that um, he might try to be funny and charming and, and camouflage his own childhood suffering. But I think he was very moved by, by the children that he was meeting because, like, like all children, uh, they were very lovable and very delightful and clearly also very hurt. And he started sharing more openly in a way that's not characteristic of him about his own, you know, his own scary, painful experiences as a child. Is this was not in my plan because I didn't know? Is uh, the client a composite of different clients, or the, what, what you write in the book is, is just for this particular the experience of this particular yeah. client, even though it was not okay? Mm-hmm. Okay, so let me shift gear just a little bit and and go back to to the dance between psychotherapy, and I'll, I'll say psychotherapy, and, and of course you, you are a psychoanalyst, so we could go more specifically into psychoanalysis if, psychoanalysis if you think so, that is needed to make that distinction, but I'll, I'll say just psychotherapy. There's this dance between Buddhism and, and psychotherapy that you very eloquently describe in the book, and, and, but there are some tensions, and there are a couple of ones that I want to to go a little deeper. And, and actually, this is one of the discussions that you have with Lama Pema, which is, I think, is a point of, of disagreement at some point between the two of you. This idea that he just tells you, you have to let go of that, or your story of stuff. And this is, this is common when I, when I teach in the transpersonal class stuff. Well, if the self is empty, if nothing is, is permanent, if it's all impermanence, why, why get too attached to our little stories, right? Shouldn't we just let them go? So I, I want to hear what you said. I've read it here, but I want to hear. Yeah. Well, I, I, I do think that, that one of the main gifts of Western psychology to Eastern religion is, is appreciation of our subjectivity, of our personhood. 
And many people who, who discover the Dharma are, are so relieved to find a tradition that is not so focused on our personal experience. And in a way, it, it can be so unburdening right, to realize that regardless of what we have suffered, and especially the things that we imagine could be life-wrecking right, or just derailed us permanently, it's, it's extraordinary to feel like we've, we've found a healing path where our, our personal experience is not so relevant. And, of course, that can be helpful to clinical work as well. But in my, in my experience, I would say both clinically and personally, there's, there's no splitting off our subjectivity. Right? We really do have to, to go through it. Right? And we really do have to be in conscious relationship to our personhood in order to let it go for periods of time. And, and so um, one of the things that Lama Pema and I often talk about is, is the value of staying curious about our personal experience, but doing so in a way that, that doesn't uh, trap us in it. Right, or, or prevent us from appreciating that whatever it is we go through personally, it's, it's, our, it's our particular inroad to collective experience. There's a risk, and I've, I've seen it in practice, of this, the so-called spiritual bypassing, right? And say, oh, nothing matters, this is just an illusion, this is just a, whatever language you want. It's, it's trigger, I, I, it gets me triggered. Me, in me too, way. me too. Mm-hmm. How do you avoid that spiritual bypassing? You even talk about uh, disagreeing with Lama Pema about how doing that would be spiritualizing trauma. Right. Well, the older I get, the more I appreciate that spiritual bypassing is just part of having a, a spiritual practice or being a spiritual person. I think because it's, it's challenging to face into our suffering, it's understandable that at times all of us will, will want to use whatever's available to us as a way of right, getting mm-hmm. distance from pain and suffering. Um, but for my patients who are um, Buddhist practitioners or practitioners of any faith tradition, I, I like to just gently, non-judgmentally point that out, right? That it's, it's, of course, tempting to imagine that our problems don't matter, you know, on, on a grand scheme or existentially, but really we just need to, to make room for the truth of what we've lived through or are going through, um, and, and again, in a spacious way. It's an elegant defense. That's what I, what I tell my students. The spiritual bypassing is a very elegant way of not dealing with something yeah. in a way. Yeah. It's an elegant def- defense, and, and unfortunately, it, it can be um, uh, quite a pitfall, right? It, it can be something that's hard to climb out of, and especially if you're in a spiritual community that reinforces that defense. How spiritual you are. Because yeah. you're not getting attached to it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Another one that I hear often, and this maybe I know this is one of those confusions of translation and confusion of words, just like ego, right? The psychological ego is not the same that the Buddhist ego in in some ways, but attachment. When I first learned about the four noble truths, uh, the the problem of suffering is clinging. But the first time I heard it, I actually heard it translated as attachment. So this idea that attachment is what makes us suffer, and then, and then you start hearing in psychology, no, it's so important to have secure attachment. So there seems to be a tension there between don't cling, don't attach, again, impermanence, and on the other side is no, if you don't have secure attachment, you're, you're on for trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I think there is a tension around attachment in, in these traditions, um, but there's also there's also compatibility there because um, on the one hand, what you find in Buddhist teaching is is 
endless reminders that, of course, we're going to care deeply for each other, and we should, right? We, we should really find a way to cultivate love, right, and, and deep affection and the wish to be close. It's just that that can easily slip into a fantasy, that those feelings and those people sh- should be abiding, right? That they should defy change, right? We should always be should able always to be hold there. on. Mom should always be here. <clears throat> yeah, or, or whomever really likes us, <laughs> right, should always be there really liking us. Mm-hmm. Or the people who can't stand us should always stay away, right? And, and so there's obvious wisdom in, in this teaching that it's, it's really just a matter of how we relate to the experience of attachment, how much awareness we bring to it. In, in Western psychology, um, we're, we're encouraged right, to form attachments. But still, with, with increased awareness of how we bring a lot of longing to that experience and so much fantasy, right, and a lot of projection... Um, and so I think there's compatibility there between the traditions. Where they're different is, I, I do think in the Buddha Dharma, there's perhaps not enough appreciation for, and I, I say this in the book, how profoundly we need each other. Right? I mean, we're relational. So we just, we just don't make it <laughs> in any way without others. And I, I think the, the, the Dharma really um, it doesn't want to emphasize that interpersonal need, and that's obviously a central focus in Western psychotherapy. And that leads me to something that we talk about over the phone, how Buddhism... Well, there, there's this argument that one of the reasons why Buddhism has been so popular in the West and kind of, in a way has had kind of an easy way in is this perhaps misunderstood idea of, of it's a very individual thing to do. You just go into your Sappho, you meditate, you look like a, like a Buddha, and you'll get enlightened, right? And, and you don't need to deal with other people. And I think that's an oversimplification because the Buddha talks about the, the, the Sangha, right? The community. Yeah. Yeah, I, I hear this too. And, and certainly um, in Christian seminaries where I've done a lot of teaching, it's, it's often a misperception that the Buddha Dharma is about our own individual experience. And of course, there's a history of um, certain lineages emphasizing the need to work with one's own mind and heart before trying to help others, right? This is really the, the difference mm-hmm. between the Hinayana mm-hmm. and the Mahayana traditions. Change yourself, you change the world. Yeah, yeah. Or start, start with yourself, right? The more you change your own mind and heart, the more you're going to be able to skillfully, right, change the minds and hearts of others. In the Mahayana tradition, that includes Zen and Tibetan, etc., um, we, we, we grow, we change ourselves through the process of joining others, supporting others, discovering others. So really the whole Mahayana endeavor is totally relational, right? And then, of course, when you, you expand into teachings of dependent origination and emptiness... You, you realize that this is really a tradition that wants to suggest we, we are profoundly interdependent. Connected to that, to how the West, the Buddhism has been uh, introduced into the West, you, you talk, I don't, I don't remember even the talk, you, in, the, in the book you talk about it, but we definitely talk about this idea of secular Buddhism, right? And how Buddhism has come up, it has become almost synonym in, in, some, in some ways of stress reduction. Yeah, so that, that's the way. I'm a Buddhist because I, want, I don't want to have so much stress in my life. And you say in the book, and I, I know you have issues with it, and, and, and I have issues with it, and it's, it's good as well. But, but in the book you say we shouldn't be too shy about spiritual aspects in, in psychotherapy. I totally butcher exactly what you say, but something like that. So I, I want you to talk a little bit about secular Buddhism and 
religiosity or spirituality and how to bring that. Don't be afraid, don't be shy to bring that into the clinical setting. Yeah. Well, first of all, I do want to say it's really understandable that people want to feel less stress, right? And and it's a good reason to to pursue meditation, right? To to realize that there are ways to to quiet the mind, to work with the, the nervous system, right? Mindfulness can can radically change people's experience. Um, however, I do I do think there's a risk with secular traditions of losing, right, the the complexity of tradition, right, and the fullness of religious tradition. And it it also, I think, sets the stage for the ego to become a little bit too dominant, or both in the teacher and in the students, when when everything about the the traditions are stripped away. So I I think it's worth just being curious about, right? I mean, some people find extremely wonderful, healthy, secular, spiritual communities. If so, great. Um, but I also think it's just worth reflecting upon what's what's missing, right? How how would the experience change if the teacher um, came out of that tradition or that traditional education? Um, and then in terms of, of bringing both a secular and a religious approach into clinical work, I mean, one of the things that I write about is I think it's important for therapists, obviously, to be boundaried, but but not to be too shy about what they disclose, right? So if there's something that's been helpful for the therapist, why not share it? <laughs> Again, not to impose it, not to, to expect that the patient is going to pick it up with gusto, but simply to offer Right there, there are other healing methods. This isn't the only one. Yeah. Sometimes when I when I think about meditation as a stress reduction, I say, well, you have to start with it, whether the client or the person is. What they need right now is to reduce the stress. You know, say, no, 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 wait, but there's all this tradition and, and this religious religious sense to it. You start there, and the way I see it is that's that's the that's the starting point, right? And then just start pulling the thread and say, wow, there's so much more here. That, that's, there's a whole tradition yeah. behind this. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much more and there's, there's so much depth, right? And, and I think the more people begin to, to learn about their tradition, again, whether it's Buddhism or Hinduism or Judaism, the more, the more they realize that there's a lot of psychological content there. Right? And, and in the Dharma, uh, all of the teachings on compassion, for instance, can be very provocative psychologically. Right? I definitely have patients who, who are curious about the Dharma, who are practicing, and they, they start to realize um, how difficult it is to access any genuine feelings of compassion on their own behalf. So... It's, it's very meaningful to explore. And sometimes I, when we talk about our students, with my students in the transpersonal class, we talk about how in many ways psychotherapy and religion are in the same path, right? Let's not forget that the word psyche is soul or spirit. So there's, it, it was just a matter of time for those two, the Western way of thinking of things and, and the, the rest of the world, not just, not just the Eastern to find that we're talking about the same things, different levels, different layers, and different depths, but it, does, it makes sense that there will be points of contact between those two. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and um, certainly around issues of meaning-making, right? you find that convergence. And I would say the, the wish to somehow feel that we can transcend the grip of self, 
I mean, ultimately, both, both traditions really want to help people feel connected to their own, their own value, their own sacredness, but then slowly, slowly begin to access a sense of other people being just as real, right? Or, or the world beyond oneself being just as meaningful, just as compelling. Yes. Some, sorry, I got distracted by just what you were saying. Uh, something that you mentioned before is this idea of compassion. And that, that comp- idea of compassion comes back over and over in the book. And something that I really like is that you're not just talking about compassion for the client, which is fundamental. And you talk about how, uh, let's, let's talk about that first. You, you talk about how it's kind of sus- uh, implied that the therapist is going to be compassionate. Uh, but there's, there's an assumption there that that's going to be the case, and you, you see how spiritual practice and the traditions can be very helpful in opening the heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been really struck in my analytic training, and, and now just being with other analysts in different analytic communities um, by the, uh, what I would say, overt need for compassion training. Because it's, it's not enough to learn about the psyche, right? It's not enough to know that um, people who come to therapy are likely suffering. In order to really tap into to depths of compassion, especially if what's happening in the treatment is, is painful, right? If, if there's rage that the patient feels toward the therapist, Right? or if they feel repetitively insufficiently helped, and yet they don't want to stop, they want to continue, how do you, how do you really tap into that compassion? So I, I do feel that any Western psychotherapy or psychoanalytic training program needs to add in some compassion training. And you say that compassion needs to start with yourself. Because you say, I, I, can open, I cannot open to myself. No, sorry. What I cannot open to in myself, I will shut out in others. I think that's so fundamental. Self-compassion, the ability yeah. to deal with our own pain compassionately, not just intellectually, but actually feel our own pain. Otherwise, we won't be able to feel the pain of others. Yeah, this is, this is key. And... Um, when I was training, I was reading really across orientations, but I was very struck by Karen Horney's work. Uh, she was a great German psychoanalyst who discovered the Dharma, and she began to understand and, and to really fold into her clinical work the need for the patient to, to touch into that genuine compassion right, for their own suffering. And until that happened... It was hard for the, the work to begin. Yeah. You, you probably gather at this point. The, the name of the book is, to, well, To Heal a Wounded Heart. And the subtitle is The Transformative Power of Buddhism and Psycho- Psychotherapy in Action. And another way of seeing this book is that it's a book about trauma. It's about healing trauma, which is such a big topic. It always has been, but now it's like becoming more aware how much trauma is in our, our daily life. And I want to read a, a piece. You talk a lot, about, a lot of beautiful pieces about trauma, but, but let me just read this one and, and hear your reactions and your comments on it. Still, while listening to the mournful and evocative sounds coming from the radio, I consider the possibility that a covert feeling of otherness was part of the human condition. It seemed there was always some aspect of our being, a facet of our personality, that got too little room and felt pushed out of the underground. Who hadn't at, who ha, who hadn't at some point felt that they had to keep the truth of themselves under the wraps? That's a great question. Raise your hand if you have some. Right? <laughs> who, hadn't, who hadn't stopped some feelings of not being quite right for this world? There was an archetypal element to this suffering, something preceding birth or personal circumstances. In this way, learning to navigate such feelings seems to be part of the developmental journey. 
Could you comment on this? Sure. Well, I mean, certainly uh, the historical Buddha and all the great teachers who followed him will, will make endless reference to, to how much we suffer, right? To, to how pervasive suffering is. And already you, you begin to, to feel the relationship between that awareness and compassion, right? Because when we really get it, uh, then each person you see, it doesn't matter, as my, my teacher says, it doesn't matter how fashionable they are, right? it doesn't matter how great their hair is, I guarantee you they have suffered. And, and when that awareness really sets in, Right then, then the way we interact with each person is going to change. Yeah, but I I think that um, bringing bringing a psychological element to that awareness is is very important, and um, this is important be- because sometimes we have the fantasy that if we have the right conditions. Right, then we can transcend suffering, or that there probably are people who haven't suffered because they had good parents and they didn't have financial insecurity and they had a favorable birth, etc., etc. They were the lucky ones. They were the me. lucky ones, mm-hmm. right. right. And this, of course, this narrative generates tremendous suffering. Right? That comparative lens, is, right, it, it fuels a lot of pain and suffering. But, but as clinicians, right, we, we know, um, and just by nature of also being human, that the psyche is, is so complex, right? It really does have so many parts, so many facets. And I, I do think it's extremely rare. I've not yet met a person who felt that there was room for the fullness of who they are, right, for the fullness of their multiplicity. Even in the most loving families, right, there's usually some culturally influenced expectation or hope for who the child is going to become, who they won't become, right, attributes that that will be strong, attributes that will be very subtle, it's, it's rare. I mean, I'm sure they exist, but I have not met <laughs> these parents who, who really um, could be completely receptive to the fullness of who the child is and is becoming. And so in, in every child, there's usually some, some protective or defensive splitting, right, from the parts that might destabilize a relationship with a needed caregiver, and then obviously, you know, if, if the family system or the culture or the circumstances are really unstable, then things get treacherous, right? Then the child really must split off something in order to survive. And you say something that was personally touching for me because I, I had an experience similar to that. We, we don't need to go into the details, but about the power of witnessing somebody else's story, right? The power, in that trauma, in that trauma, the the power that telling your story, that you're not the only one that knows what happened. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Well, yeah, I I think because we are relational, um, it's not enough for us to have our experience. We, We really need someone to bear witness, Right? And, and developmental theorists uh, talk a lot about the need to be recognized, right? that as we're growing in infancy and into toddlerhood, um, the way we, we come to feel real is through the experience of somebody else seeing us and, and also feeling that there's some, there's some basic alignment, there's some basic resonance between how we're being seen and how we see ourselves. And, and I think this need continues, right, to the last breath, right? We, we really need, we need our experience uh, to, be, to be recognized by another. Now, there's something about shame, 
of that suffering. There's something about, and, and that is part of the problem, right? Yes, I need to be seen, but what I've been through makes me feel ashamed of who, am I, who, who I am. And that's very interesting. You explain very well that psychological process because it was a, well, why would the child be ashamed of something that happened to him or her when he, she had no control over those things? That's their parents or whatever. They, somebody else's fault. It's definitely not the child, the child. But the child is the one that carries the shame that brings about isolation. So how does that happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, kids are extraordinary, right? Because they're they're both uh, they're, they're so fluid, right? They're so resilient, they're so capable, um, but they also have an inflated sense of their their own power, right? And Fairbairn and many other analysts wrote about how how children will will suffer a lot of magical thinking. And especially if, if the caregiver is um, suffering in a way or behaving in a way that seems dangerous, right? the, the child will really take on that burden of badness. Right? It's, it's safer to feel that the problem exists in me if I'm the kid than to feel that the parent whom I need right, is uh, really troubled, right? inherently problematic. And so that feeling about oneself can set in as, as reality, as absolute truth. Right? And, and especially when this happens early, right? when it happens during the pre-verbal parts of our development, it, it just starts to, to feel like um, an absolute truth around which all subsequent experience needs to be organized. And so... Part of a healing path is lifting to awareness, right? These beliefs about oneself that have set in. But also to begin to understand um, where they come from, right? So that that shame, right? That, and the shame is usually in response to feeling that there's, there's something inherent to who I am that has caused a rupture, Right? So if, if a child is, is not really able to feel safely connected to a caregiver, or they suffer the loss of the caregiver, often there's, there's a feeling that there's something inherent to who the child if is. If only I were being better, nicer, clever, more clever. Yeah, by my very nature. It's beyond behavior. Yeah. And that's, that's often the root of shame. And there's something about being witness in that shame, which is, is almost like a coin itself. It's a conundrum. On the one hand, that's the very part, the very part that I need to heal is the very part that I don't want you to see right. no matter what. It's the part that I'm going to hide from you at right. all costs. Right. And, and this is why many, many therapeutic treatments take time. <laughs> they shouldn't take forever, right, because therapy happens in real time. But it's, it's usually slower than, than anyone would like because of that ambivalence. The very thing I need to reveal is the very thing I feel I need to hide. Now, you say that you, you were a medical anthropologist, you were interested in medical anthropology at some point, and you say something that was puzzling to me. There's a biological component to the need to tell our own story. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a biologist, but there's, there's a lot of research now in the field of interpersonal neurobiology that our, our brain chemistry changes in dependence upon how we're listened to. So when we're telling people our, our story and then we're received in a way that, that, again, is spacious and that is respectful and is curious and is compassionate, it, it not only changes how we feel about ourselves, it, it changes us neurobiologically, right? So th that need to be heard is, is really quite important. It's foundational. It's healing. Yeah. The talking cure actually works. That's right. <laughs> Trauma, being a psychotherapist, I sometimes 
again, I tell my students, in a good day, it's such a wonderful privilege to be a psychotherapist and to be had a front seat row, front seat row in somebody's struggles and pains and suffering and dreams. And I feel honored and I feel humble. In a bad day, I think, who in the whole world would want to do this for X number of hours a day, listen to somebody's pain and, and sad story and trauma and horror? Yet you're able to be incredibly optimistic in, in this book. Tell me your secret. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I... Uh... I certainly felt very identified with what you just described, which is that uh, this profession um, covers a broad spectrum of experiences from the extraordinarily joyful and inspiring. I mean, this is something that I think is not widely understood, is how, how funny, right, how amazingly bizarre and odd and humorous psychotherapy can be. Right? And so it can be very, very enlivening. And also, f for me, um, the, the pleasure of honesty, right? the pleasure of being able to sit with another human being and speak honestly, obviously not always, um, about what matters, about what's meaningful. Right? This, this is very enlivening. But the work is also very challenging. And for, for some of the reasons that you just laid out, uh, sometimes you really need to plumb um, the hell realms with people. Right? You have to be willing to, to go to some extremely painful places. But in my, my personal experience, that's not the hardest part for me. Oh, my God. <laughs> the, the harder part is the defense against going there. So if I'm working with someone and they have what I would call an extremely well-developed protector part, right, or critical protector part that says, I am aware that I am in therapy, <laughs> I am aware that I'm taking time and money to work on this, but I'm going to do everything I can to try to get distance from this. That's, that's challenging. That's and they're usually very good at it because their whole life they've been doing it. Yeah. And, right, I mean, this is, this is what makes that possible is the process of looking at how I might be colluding with them. Right, and Erwin Hirsch and others have written about how many therapists learn to what he says coast in the countertransference. Instead of, of risking saying the thing that, that might cause anxiety and might be destabilizing but is ultimately going to be helpful, there's the temptation to, to keep things uh, on some kind of even keel. And so what makes that, that manageable and meaningful for me is bringing my awareness to how I might also be colluding, colluding with the patient, with right? Is there a part of me that's afraid, right, to really, really open up this trauma or really look at the depth of hatred, right, or whatever it is? Yeah, and it's, and it's easy in a way to rationalize our own as therapists and say, well, you know what, I, I don't want to destabilize this person. It has taken her, him, her so much to find some balance that if I plunge into that place, I may end up hurting them again. But that's, again, that's where we need to go because yeah. that's where the pain is. That's where the trauma is. Right. Yeah, and, and as therapists, I think it's important to just keep discerning um, how do we protect ourselves, right? And, and do we have our own narcissism that could be explored, right? Do we have our own protective defenses that could be uh, navigated more directly so that it opens up the work with a, with a patient? It also seems to be the case that you have a, a deep hope, and you actually put it in a beautiful way, 
Even the worst form of suffering come with the potential for healing. So there's, there's something that that's very deep. You deeply believe that. I do. I do, and I, I don't say that lightly because I really appreciate uh, how painful it can be to, to, to suffer and to be traumatized. Thank you. And how complex this world is, right? But in, in my experience, it is when we, we access, when we directly access right, the depth of that suffering, uh, when we discover resources, both internally and externally, that help us just call so much meaning from the suffering, and then potentially even to uproot it. It must be. It is very hard. Sometimes this having this time of trust. Have you ever find yourself in saying like, "Oh my God, I, I, how could someone go through this process?" To to hold to that conviction that again, every form of suffering comes with the potential of healing. Have you ever feel doubtful, like? Ugh. Yeah, I mean, I, I have some patients who try to convince me <laughs> they're yes. suffering. I have they no just solution. Lie. That's right. That's right. And sometimes, bless you. Sometimes I find myself feeling convinced because they're persuasive. <laughs> but then I just have to. I have to remember. No, this is not. This is not the f- fullest truth. This might be part of the truth that for quite some time, right, the suffering has been chronic, right? It seems to defy healing. But, but even that, I have to stay, stay more curious about and not, right, this is where spiritual bypassing can come in, not minimize. Right? If someone has been, because many of my patients are, are in their 70s and 80s, um, you know, suffering significantly, Right, for, for the better part of a century, I need to take that seriously. And then, of course, the ripple effects. Well, they don't even have to be in that developmental stage. I have young patients, too, right, to suffer for one year, right, six months, seriously. Well, the impact is extraordinary. But sometimes just the, the deepening appreciation for the impact, but also the nuances, right? Again, things open up, right? Our, our, our narrative about how we suffer tends to be very concrete. It tends to be too narrow. Yes. It focuses on the bad things that happen, right? Yeah, but in, but in a very particular way, right? Through one lens. And part of what can happen in a good treatment is that the, the truth about what someone has lived through just expands, right? And that expansiveness starts to feel so illuminating, right? You realize, oh, I didn't just suffer because I, I wasn't like my sister or my brother or, you know, I, I was too much for this family or because my mother was sick or whatever, you know, whatever the narrative is. I suffered for all of these reasons, right? And these reasons interacted. And, and then just that fuller truth starts to um, be something that can be respected, appreciated even. And we all suffer, as you said. We all suffer in our own particular way, but there's, that's a reality of life, as the, as the Buddha said. Yeah, yeah, we all suffer. And I, I will say, um, I also feel that it's important, and I'm learning this through the book, actually, because some of my patients have read the book. And so it's a little, little weird for me. They now come to session knowing about my childhood, and they want to talk about my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what's been very moving for me is that, um, almost verbatim, they're all telling me, how extremely helpful it's been for them to discover that I also suffered, that I also had problems, that I had a complex family. 
because often in therapy, right, we idealize the therapist or if, if we're in a spiritual community where we have this temptation to want to idealize our mentors. But, but in that idealization, sometimes we don't see the fullness of their human experience. And then it can start to feel like it's only me who suffers, right? Not this idealized therapist or mentor. Yeah, it's normalizing too. Very normalizing. It's the quick question because you mentioned that people are reading your book and coming back. Has anyone said, hey, why don't you bring Lama Pema to our, to our sessions? <laughs> no, no. No, no, one, no one has asked for that yet? No one has asked yet. <laughs> oh, a follow-up question to that. Something that, is, that I've heard before in, in some of the other interviews is like, this was the, at least that's what you say, this was the only time you did it and you haven't done it since. Why? Why not use this as part of your treatment plan? Make a <laughs> <laughs> well, often we write about our exceptional experience, right? Um, I, I, do, I do really appreciate the need for the frame, for a boundary, right, for a container, We're, we're more inclined to be able to um, risk talking about what seems too terrible to talk about if, if we really trust the container with a therapist, right? We really trust that it goes no further, right? This, this is something that the two of us can hold. Um, and so f for that reason, I'm, I'm not really inclined to play with that frame too much. Um, but it was important for me as a, as a younger therapist to discover that sometimes we do need to play with the frame. It won't look like that, right? It might mean that suddenly in a, in a thoughtful way we're going to disclose something about ourselves, right? Or um, we're going to try something that we normally don't. We're going to say less if we tend to be very interactive, or we're going to be interactive if we tend to be um, more subdued, right? We're, we're going to experiment in a way that's as helpful as possible. So no more, no, no part two. Lama Pema. With well, <laughs> stay tuned. <laughs> we'll see. Going back to your optimism, this is one of those how much, how much questions. Um, so how much of that optimism that we talk about has to do with your clinical training and your experience as a clinician? How much does it have to do with your childhood background? Because we talk, you talk a lot about it in the book about your background, your mom, your dad, and all that. And how much has to do with your, your Buddhist uh, practice? It's a good question. I'm not sure that I can answer it definitively because I don't know. But my sense is that um, my sense is that I I came into this life not not necessarily optimistic, but just curious about what people are going through, and that curiosity has felt. Uh, very helpful to me always because I know the difference between being in an experience and being curious about it, right? Just that, that spaciousness can, can be life-saving. Um, so maybe you could say I, I was born with some optimism in me. It's a good karma there. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. And I think it got, it got powerfully reinforced by my Buddhist training, Uh, and by my friendship with Lama Pema, who <clears throat> I, I, I was astonished by the amount of loss he experienced, having fled Tibet as a young child and then having lost his family, uh, including three younger siblings uh, due to illness, very sudden illness, and his, his capacity to um, stay curious I mean, that, for me, is really the key. It's not that he doesn't continue to suffer the ripple effects of all that trauma, but I think that reflective function, right, this is what we, we work on in therapy, 
um, that reflective function um, that intersects right with his spiritual training, his his conviction that each one of us has Buddha nature, or you could say each one of us has a layer of the mind that is extraordinarily clear seeing. No matter what we have lived through, I, I have, I feel I have been in relationship to that layer of the psyche and in, in so many people. This is a this is grounds for optimism. Yeah, as, as therapists, we have to be optimistic. It would be very bad to be a pessimistic psychotherapist. I cannot even imagine that idea. Uh, what's the point? <laughs> <laughs> So we're, we're almost at time, but I want to ask you two, two last questions, perhaps quick ones. Um, what's, what are you writing about now? What, what's next in this process? So you, this book has come up. What are, you, what are you interested in? What are you writing about? What's next? Yeah. Well, I find myself drawn to a couple of themes that I look forward to diving into quickly. And, and one is the, the theme of, of injustice and what injustice can generate psychically. Right? And, and then how to bring that into conversation with a spiritual response. This, for me, has something to do with um, gender. And, and I'm very curious about uh, gender again from a, a spiritual and and a psychological perspective. Um, this might sound a little too abstract, but it's in the territory of of injustice, uh, gender, and spirituality. Right? And this has, for me, something to do with with my Buddhist training that says we shouldn't get angry. Right, we we should recognize how delusional we're being when we get angry. But I, I think our anger is is important. Right, it's it's a way to symbolize uh, the the truth of being badly hurt. And often we get hurt for reasons that feel extremely unjust. And so I, I find myself really wanting to unpack that a little bit. Hmm. And last question before we go to Q and A. It's not really a question. Last words of wisdom for, for this crowd. Last words of wisdom. Hang in there. <laughs> <laughs> That's really what I want to impart. <laughs> yeah. Uh, chances are you're, you're going through all sorts of things that are, are really quite challenging. Um, and, and I find myself wanting to, to encourage, right, and to um, support Right, your your efforts to understand what you're going through, right, to to recover from it, and then perhaps through that process, be uh, a source of support of care for others because you have you have hung in there. Mm-hmm. Thank you. It's been wonderful. Thank you, Sylvia. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. <laughs>